Suffering for believing in Jesus is hardly new to the Christian experience. But suffering to the point of death is hardly ever experienced by any of us who live out Christianity here in our country. However, in the first few centuries of Christianity, suffering to the point of death was not merely experienced more often, it was also celebrated by Christians. In fact, in the first few hundred years of Christianity, it was practiced by some believers that they would begin to make days where believers were martyred into days of celebration, days they would refer to as birthday celebrations, not the day of a physical birth, but the day when a saint would enter into the presence of God because of martyrdom. The earliest known authentic record outside of the New Testament, that is, of a Christian's martyrdom in, from the second, is from the second century. It was actually a record that was of a man's death who was actually helped by this very passage that we're studying today. In fact, the letter that is written to describe this martyrdom and this birthday was composed around 155 AD. That is, put that in some perspective, that's about 60 years after John wrote this book. And it describes the martyrdom of one of the Apostle John's own disciples. Someone who was discipled directly by John the Apostle, who happened to be a pastor in the city of Smyrna what is now modern Izmir, Turkey. That disciple was named Polycarp. And the letter that describes his martyrdom is called the letter of the Smyrnaeans or the martyrdom of Polycarp. I'm gonna read a little bit of it to you, more of a, a summary of the letter. I would encourage you, not now, but later, you can look it up. It's not a long letter at all, and it would really serve you well to go and read through this account of Polycarp's martyrdom. But I just, as you listen to the summary of it, I want you to think through, this was a disciple of John who wrote this letter. And this happened maybe 50 to 60 years after this little letter to the city of Smyrna was written. The letter takes place during the, what was known as the public games that were held in the arena in Smyrna that would be a gathering of about 20,000 people in attendance and theologian Timothy George noted about that. He said the program of the day went like this. In the morning, the wild animals were let loose into the arena, hunted down and killed. Later in the day, the gladiators themselves would fight, but in the afternoon with the sun high in the sky, it was time for the execution of the criminals. And there were a lot of them, slaves, war captives, arsonists, murderers, and those like Polycarp who had committed sacrilege by refusing to honor the Godhead of Caesar and who would not take the easy way out. When you read the letter of Polycarp's martyrdom, you will see that it begins after a young Christian named Germanicus was devoured by the wild beasts. It then says the multitude marveling at the bravery of the God-beloved and God-fearing people of the Christians raised a cry, away with the atheists, let the search be made for Polycarp. And they referred to Christians as atheists because Christians would only acknowledge one God, not many gods, so they were against the gods. No doubt Polycarp could have escaped, but already he had a dream in which he saw the pillow underneath his head burning with fire, and he had awakened to tell his own disciples, I must be burned alive. His whereabouts were, were betrayed by a slave who collapsed under torture. They came to arrest him. He ordered that they should be given a meal and provided with all that they wished, while he asked for himself the privilege of one last hour in prayer. Not even the police captain wished to see Polycarp die. And on the brief journey to the city, the captain pled with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer sacrifice 
and be saved. But Polycarp was adamant that for him, only Jesus Christ was Lord. When he entered the arena, the proconsul gave him the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. Polycarp responded, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning, and Polycarp replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched? For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come in everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. So the crowds came, flocking with bundles of wood from the workshops and from the baths. And the Jews, even though they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were foremost in bringing wood for the fire. They were going to nail him to a stake to burn him. Polycarp responded, leave me as I am, he said. For he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give by the nails. So they left him loosely bound in the flames. The account will go on to say that the flames did not completely consume him, and so they thrust him through with a blade and his blood actually poured out so profusely that it began to put out the fire. But there he died and was martyred on February the 22nd, around 155 AD. And Christians began to celebrate his birthday on February 23rd. And you'll find that to be true in a number of expressions of Christianity. But again, just 60 years after Jesus gave this letter to this little church in Smyrna. As we see in each of these letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, these letters deal with specific details of very specific churches at the very end of the first century. But the lingering application is obvious to us as we read these. Yes, there are details in these letters that may transcend application for us, but there is a host of application remaining for us, especially in this letter. And you have to ask yourself the question, what would cause a man like Polycarp to say, not only don't nail me to the, to the wood in the fire to keep me in the flames, but to say, bring it on. What would give him confidence to say, just give me one more hour in prayer before you take me to the arena? What do you think he was thinking about? I think we have some insight into that. We know he was thinking about the Lord. Before they took him away, what did he ask for? One more hour of prayer with the Lord. He was thinking about the Savior himself, which we're told, even in the book of Hebrews, you remember that wonderful passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that tells us how to suffer. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and that is all of the people who have gone before us, their testimony has gone before us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do you endure suffering? Fix your eyes on Jesus. How do you endure Suffering that might actually lead you to die. You think about, you concentrate on, you consider Jesus Christ. Now, what does that look like? We can say, look to Jesus. We can say, think on Christ. But practically speaking, what does that entail? What do you look to Jesus for? 
in the midst of suffering. I think this little letter that we find in these very few verses in Revelation 2 give us the answer to that question. This is what it means to concentrate on Christ so that you suffer for him in a way that brings God great glory. Here's what it looks like practically. And what we're going to see in these few verses, in this little letter that Jesus gives to this powerful but poverty-stricken church in Smyrna, are four ways to concentrate on Jesus when we suffer for him. Now, I don't know what the suffering will entail for any one of us, but when we talk about affliction for Christ and suffering for Christ, it might not be that which leads us to death. It might be simply you're living for him and you experience some kind of adverse opposition because of that. So how do you concentrate on Christ in the midst of that suffering for the sake of Christ? That's what we see in this letter. This is how the saints suffer and think on Christ and endure to the end. First, the first way you concentrate on Jesus when you suffer for him is to look to Jesus for strength. Look to Jesus for strength in suffering. We find that in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Again, like we have been learning so far, this letter is dispatched by an angelic representative from God and he's bringing the letter to the church and revealing it to this congregation along with All the other letters that are written here, this church would receive this one and all the others. The city of Smyrna was known to be a beautiful city. Again, it's in modern day Turkey. You can go there today and visit the modern city of Izmir. It's, It's one of the, it is a bustling city. When we visited there, and perhaps you've been there as well, some of you, it is one of the more secular cities in in Asia Minor, in Turkey. It's full of young people who are very vibrant and the city is quite alive. But in the first century, it was equally alive and very vibrant. One of the most beautiful cities. It's just 40 miles north of Ephesus, which was one of the most prominent cities in Asia Minor in the first century. One commentator records this about the beauty of of Smyrna. He says, if it was inevitable that Ephesus should come first in the list of the seven churches, it was but natural that Smyrna, its great rival, should come second. Of all the cities of Asia, Smyrna was the loveliest. Men called it the ornament of Asia, the crown of Asia, and the flower of Asia. Lucian said it was the fairest of the cities of Ionia. The wind, said Aristides, blows through every part of the city and makes it as fresh as a grove of trees. The city sits today as it did 2,000 years ago at the end of a 30-mile gulf that reaches inland into Turkey. It was a great place to protect the city in battle. It was easy to defend. It was a place that brought significant trade because of that gulf. It was also a powerful place for religion, especially the religion of Rome, and that is the worship of the emperor. It was a city known for its Roman patriotism. It was one of the most patriotic cities of Asia Minor, so much so that to reject the worship of Rome and its system of government and its leadership would be a cause for potential execution. The loyalty of Smyrna to the Roman system was renowned. One commentator noted, Smyrna was a long, staunch ally of Rome. In fact, its citizens were so infatuated with Rome that in 195 BC, they built a temple in which Rome was worshipped. A century later, the Roman general Sulla, his ill-clad army faced a bitter winter weather and when the Roman soldiers plight was announced in a general assembly of Smyrna's citizens 
they reportedly took off their own clothes to send to them. Rome rewarded Smyrna's loyalty by choosing it above all other applicants as a site for a new temple dedicated to the emperor Tiberius in AD 26. And when an earthquake destroyed the city late in the second century, the emperor Marcus Aurelius rebuilt it. Smyrna boasted of a massive stadium, a library, a public theater, the largest in Asia. It claimed to be the birthplace of the great epic poet Homer, a famous thoroughfare called the Street of Gold curved around Mount Pegasus, which rose about 500 feet from the harbor. And it was like a necklace on the statue of a goddess, they would say. At either end was a temple, one to a local patron divinity, and at the other end, a temple to Zeus. The Acropolis on Mount Pegasus was called the Crown or Garland of Smyrna had a population of perhaps around 200,000 people, which was very large for the day. It's a large city, and here's a little church there. We don't know when this church started. In fact, the only thing we know about the church in Smyrna is what we read in these verses. There's no New Testament letter written to it other than this. There's no mention of it in all of Paul's travels except for what we see right here as Jesus addresses this church. Perhaps it is that on Paul's third missionary journey as he made his way through Ephesus, we read the report in Acts 19.10 that he was there for two years and all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So it's very possible that during that ministry trip by Paul, a church was founded just 40 miles north of Ephesus in this little city of Smyrna. We don't know the size of the church, but the reference here in this passage to its poverty would give us the sense that it had no social influence. Perhaps it was a small congregation, we don't know. I would say it's a very powerful church if it can arrest the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ himself to get a letter dedicated to it here. But their strength, their love, The value that they had for Christ came at a very high cost, as it usually does. The name Smyrna means bitter. And so this city was a very bitter place, maybe bittersweet, we could say, for these believers who are here. But nonetheless, there was a city in this, there was a church in this city a group of Christians meeting and they were having at least some influence because they're getting the attention of the people around them to the point that they're suffering for the name of Christ. What is it that they need to hear from Jesus? How do they stand strong in the midst of this kind of suffering that they're experiencing? What do they need to hear from him? They need to hear from him what we all need to hear regardless of what the trial may be in our life. What you need to hear from Jesus is who he is, right? As we looked at the first chapter of the book of Revelation, we saw that glorious vision of Jesus there. And we remarked on if you want to stand firm, you'll stand firm only so great as your vision of him is. So will you suffer. You will be strong in suffering only as great as your vision of Christ is. So what is it about Christ that we need to to know? Well, again, as we've been seeing and we will see through all of these letters, every letter begins with an image of Christ taken from that opening vision in chapter one. And we see it here. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says... So what is it about Jesus that helps us stand strong? What are we looking to Jesus for to gain strength in trial, especially suffering? Let me give you two ideas here. First, you look to Jesus for strength by noting that Jesus transcends history. Jesus transcends history. This is really helpful to think about. It's humbling to consider as well. He calls himself here the first and the last, first and the last. He transcends time, obviously. This is what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 17, when Jesus said of himself, I am the first and the last. 
It is what John will hear again at the end of the book in Revelation 22, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. This phrase actually comes from a description of God, of Yahweh, in the book of Isaiah. Three times God is describing himself as the first and the last in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, 4. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I also am the last. Why is that significant? Why is it significant for Jesus to represent himself as the first and the last, a, a representation of God from the Old Testament? especially to a group of suffering Christians. Well, it does remind us that Jesus is telling us he is God. He's using God's very title from the book of Isaiah. But also, God being the first and last means that historical circumstances, while having real significant impact on us, they're not the first and last word on what defines us or what determines life's outcome. It's hard to think about when you're going through suffering. When you're going through suffering, what do you think about? You. You think about you. And all you think about is what you are going through. And all you can think about and imagine is your own life and the fact that your life could terminate if you were to continue in this suffering. And that's very real. You start to suffer for the sake of Christ, it can have real painful effects. What would give you strength in that? Well, the same thing that gives you strength every time that you're going through some kind of trial is to get your mind off of yourself. And put it on one who is the first and last. It might actually make you begin to think that my life is not the sum total of everything. My life is one little piece in the grand story of what God is doing across eternity. And he is in the beginning and he is in the end. He transcends those painful moments of your present He's beyond all of that, which should remind you, if he is your God, whatever suffering you are going through at this moment for being loyal to Christ is temporary under the eternal hand of God. That gives you strength, doesn't it? It should. This is temporary. I think this is why Polycarp could say, I don't need the nails, this is why in an hour before he's taken, he's communing with the God he's about to see firsthand. God transcends whatever circumstances we're in. He's the first and the last. He, not our circumstances, will endure. But also we not only see that he's transcending all of human history we also see here that Jesus is triumphant over death and that should give you strength when you suffer he's triumphant over death isn't this fascinating he's the eternal one and the next statement he says who was dead the eternal one the first and the last who was dead and has come to life I think that's a fascinating statement it is that reminder of the truth we find in Hebrews 4.15 that he knows how to sympathize with our weaknesses. The one telling the saints to press on and not to see suffering as the beginning or ending of their existence is the very one who suffered to the point of death and now is alive. He's the one telling them press on. Look to the one who suffered death for the sake of loyalty to God. Look to the one who was raised by God to eternal life. Look to him. 
You remember 1 Peter 3.18, it was Christ who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He was put to death and made alive so he could bring us to God. The understanding of death here is a key word in this little letter to Smyrna. We see it in 2.8, Jesus overcomes death with life. We see it again in verse 10, the saints are to be faithful to the point of death. We see it again in verse 11, those who overcome will not be harmed by the second death. Death is certainly on their minds. It is certainly a part of their experience. And I don't mean natural death, I mean they're dying because they're loyal to Christ. It's almost impossible for us to fathom personally. But what a great message to a church in a city like Smyrna. Not only does the word Smyrna mean bitter, but it also was a term in Greek that was reflected by the Hebrew term for myrrh. And myrrh was one of those gifts that one of the kings brought at the birth of Jesus Christ. But myrrh was also used, it was a resin from a plant that was ground up and was used for embalming the dead. How picturesque is that? For these people who are now dying for the sake of Christ in Smyrna. Reminds us of Psalm 116 verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And Jesus, above everyone else, is uniquely qualified to be the strength that those who are suffering need because of his death and his resurrection. Romans 14, 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. When you suffer for Jesus... You look to him for the strength you need. He actually is the one who transcends your circumstances and he has actually died and been raised to life again. Where else would you find any greater sustaining strength in the midst of suffering? You look to him. You concentrate on who he is if you need strength in suffering. Let's look at a second way to concentrate on Jesus when we suffer for him. It's found in verse nine. Trust Jesus for confidence in suffering. Trust him for confidence. You need strength to endure, that's sure. But suffering by its very nature looks to instill fear in you. What's the way out of the suffering for Christ? Well, deny Christ, just like Polycarp. And the police captain who's leading him off. (laughs) What would it harm just to say the words Caesar is Lord and live? What would give you confidence to say Jesus alone is Lord when you know it's going to cost you your life? I think verse 9 provides that suffering saint tremendous confidence in the midst of their trial. And what is it? here in this verse look at it again it starts with this very important term I know every letter is going to receive this word from Jesus I know this about you what is it that Jesus knows well I I just want to stop here to say when you're in the midst of suffering for the sake of Christ This happens virtually to every single person I know who has ever suffered any kind of opposition. You wonder, you begin to wonder if anybody even realizes what is happening to you. If someone else knew what was going on around you, perhaps they would help you through this. I don't know if anybody from the church in Ephesus knew what was going on in Smyrna or in any of these other churches in these other geographical areas. I don't know if anybody sent any aid to help them, like churches sent aid to Jerusalem when they were under duress. But we're told here Jesus knows. And evidently, to have confidence in suffering, that's really all that matters. That's all that matters. Well, what does he know? Well, it says here, I know your tribulation. That means he knows our affliction. 
That should give you some confidence. He does know your affliction. Flipsis is the word used for tribulation here. It means violent affliction. Tribulation is a good term to use. It's not just mild suffering. It is violent tribulation. It can be a reference to present kinds of suffering. John described his current imprisonment on the island of Patmos back in chapter 1 verse 9 as tribulation. Paul described his imprisonment for the sake of Christ in many of his letters as tribulation. It will describe a kind of suffering that God is going to bring to a particular false teacher connected with the name of Jezebel in chapter 2 verses 20 through 22. In verse 22 It says, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. That is a particular kind of suffering that this false teacher in this church is going to go through under God's hand of justice. That word tribulation is also going to be used later to describe the great tribulation That time when God pours out his wrath on the earth. Revelation 7, 14 says, My Lord, you know, he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. There are saints who are coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How did they come out of the great tribulation? They were martyred. They were murdered for the sake of Christ. That's what happens in tribulation. That's what happens in affliction is that it could lead to your own life being taken. And he knows, Jesus knows. He's aware. Affliction can refer to any kind of external opposition because of your loyalty to Christ. You might experience it in your own home. You could have a spouse who is upset with your loyalty to Christ and they'll even pit your loyalty to Christ with their, your loyalty to them. It could be children who are so inculcated into the culture that they hate what you represent because of your relationship and loyalty to Christ. It could happen in your vocation that you make certain stands and, and listen, this is be go- going to become more in our face than ever. What if you don't use the right pronouns? What if you won't affirm the right sexual ethic? What if you will not affirm the morality of the company? Your very vocation could then bring affliction, that is tribulation or opposition against you because of your stand and loyalty to Christ. Happens in families all of the time. And Jesus warned us of this. That loyalty to him would actually divide families. There's innumerable expressions of this kind of affliction. But it really doesn't matter. Jesus knows. And it's not just that he is aware of it. He knows to the degree that he is involved with you in the midst of it. He's keeping you, as we read in the opening psalm. He sees the opposition of the culture, but he keeps his people. I know it feels as if nobody really knows. You feel very isolated when you go through suffering. You feel like every eye is on you. But just keep in mind the eye of the omnipotent Christ, the all-knowing Christ, the omniscient Christ is also on you. And he knows. So he knows your affliction. Also, he knows the effects of affliction. He knows the effects of our affliction. Notice again in verse eight, he, or verse nine, I know your tribulation and what? Your poverty, your poverty, but you're rich. Interestingly, the apostle Paul will use both words, affliction and poverty, to describe the saints in Macedonia In 2 Corinthians 8, 2, when he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, there's the word tribulation, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. The kind of poverty that's being described here is the most extreme kind of poverty. This is someone who is a beggar, 
someone who is bereft of any way to provide for themselves. It's a beggar. There's no self-preservation possible. That's pretty significant in a wealthy city like this. Here are a group of Christians who are poverty-stricken in a very wealthy city. And the way that this is worded here leads us to believe that this poverty is the result of the affliction. That the poverty is connected to the affliction and the tribulation. I know your tribulation and the resulting poverty that comes from it. Perhaps it's much like what the writer of Hebrews said to his audience in Hebrews 10, 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Well, what did that look like for the, the people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to? He says, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, there's the word, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated, you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. It's very possible that some of these believers in Smyrna were actually losing their possessions because of their loyalty to Christ. When Jesus says he knows the effects of our affliction, again, he's not just mildly aware, yeah, I know know they came and took your home. Yeah, somebody told me they, they took all your income. I know. No, he's involved. It's as if he's with you in the midst of it. That's how well he knows it. And what we endure... He will one day far exceed in terms of the glory that he gives us. Isn't that the promise of Romans 8? Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Think about that. That's one of the most amazing verses, I think, in Romans 8. That no matter what kind of suffering you endure now, you could never compare it. There's no words to use. There's no memory to bring up in comparison with the glory he will give you. This is how you have confidence. You know that he knows what you're going through. And he knows the effects of that. And he will even exceed the effects of your suffering with the glory he will one day give you. In fact, he even notes this. I know you're poverty stricken, but the reality is you're rich. You're rich. Obviously, he means spiritually rich. Spiritually rich. Jesus is our own example for that. That kind of poverty and wealth existing in the same person at the same time. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He had the glory of heaven, divested himself of all of that and was poverty stricken. He was a virtual beggar and he did all of that to make us wealthy. Not wealthy in this world at this time, but wealthy with the inheritance that we will have in all eternity with him. You remember what we talked about during the Christmas season, the wealth that we have in our salvation out of Ephesians chapter 1, that he's chosen us, he's forgiven us, he's sealed us, he's given us an inheritance that will never fade. That's how Jesus could say in Luke 6.20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You don't have your wealth in this world. You're going to have your wealth in the world to come. The woe to the rich in Luke 6, 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. You want to be wealthy now? You want to have all the wealth of the world now? You'll be empty of future wealth. James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You say, so I just need to be poor to be in the kingdom? It means 
to have no hands tied to the wealth of this world as defining your own significance or self-worth. Your wealth is found in the kingdom that's coming, no matter what you might suffer now. It's the very opposite of what the Laodiceans will be told in chapter 3 in verse 17. Jesus tells them, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What do you want? You want the wealth of the world and the emptiness spiritually? You want the wealth of spirituality even though you might have the emptiness of this world. Being in Christ, even suffering the terrible consequences of persecution removes nothing from the spiritual wealth that God has given to you. Removes nothing. You could be divested of everything that you have because of your loyalty to Christ and still be ultimately wealthy in him. He knows the effects. He knows the effects. And also, we see in verse 9, he knows the people behind your affliction. He knows, who, he knows who is behind it all. You might be in a, in a place where you're being opposed and afflicted on all sides and it's as if no one recognizes the injustice being done against you and who's doing it and they hide it so well or it's affirmed by the culture. But he knows the people behind the affliction. He minces no words here in verse 9. I know your tribulation. I know that resultant poverty, even though you're rich. What else does he know? I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus is always so subtle, isn't he? So subtle. This is really a significant statement about the group that is behind much of the persecution of the Smyrnaean church here. Just like Polycarp, when he was going to be burned at the stake, it was the Jewish population of Smyrna that was bringing wood to, the, to be burned at his expense. Jesus actually describes the, the words of accusation that the Jewish people, the Jewish opponents of the Christians in that city are leveling against these believers. He calls it blasphemy not just general slander of one person against another person. The word blasphemy is usually a term that's used to describe words of opposition to God or misrepresenting God. And that's how he sees this Jewish opposition. They're so slandering the people that these, and these people so represent God that it's as if they're blaspheming God himself. And it comes from Jews, he says, blasphemy by those who say they are Jews. What's interesting is that under the emperor Domitian, likely the emperor, when this book was written, during his reign, it became mandatory for every Roman citizen to offer worship to Domitian. They would have to give sacrifices of praise and honor to the emperor And after doing so, you would be issued a certificate indicating that you had given the required worship. And if you didn't have the certificate, you actually could be executed for not giving worship to the emperor. What is fascinating is that Jews across the Roman Empire, and in particular in this area of Asia Minor, were given an exemption from this emperor worship. Also of interest is that how did many people view Christianity in the early days of Christianity? They viewed it as a sect of Judaism of which the Jewish people despised that idea. So you can see what's happening here. The Jews are exempt from this kind of emperor worship. The Christians will not give themselves to say Caesar is Lord, just like Polycarp would not give in to that. They have no certificate, and the Jews are saying, well, they're not part of us. 
They're not part of us. That's a new religion. And there was no new religions allowed in the Roman world at that time. No other religious expression would be acceptable. You couldn't concoct your own religion to get an exemption from worshiping the government. And the Jews here so violently oppose Christianity that they disavow them. They say they're illegitimate. There's no connection to them as they meet in their synagogue. There's no connection there. Christians were blasphemed like this all the time in the early days. They were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. Why? You're eating the body and the blood of the Lord. They were accused of orgies because they had their love feasts where they met together and embraced one another and enjoyed a meal together. They were accused of destroying families because of their supreme loyalty to Christ that sometimes divided families. They were accused of political disloyalty or even treason because they would not place Caesar above Christ. Some even accused them of arson because they talked about the world ending with great fire. There's no end to the kinds of accusations that were made against Christians, just taking bits and pieces of what they believed and turning it against them. Interestingly, here, Jesus says, these people say they're Jews, but they are not. They're not really Jews. What does he mean by that? They're not seeing the true end to which Judaism pointed, which was what? The Messiah. They're not true Jews because if they were true Jews, they would have been anticipating through the law and the prophets and all that was written that the Messiah had come and that Christ is the end of that. And that would make their Judaism realized and completed I don't think that that's a statement that all Christians are now to be viewed as true Jews. He's speaking of ethnic Jews. And by the way, the word used here for a Jew is used a number of times throughout the New Testament and every single reference is in reference to an ethnic Jew, never in reference to a Gentile called a Jew. Never. It's just simply referring to Jews who aren't, haven't realized where Judaism should have taken them. It's not a statement about all Christians being some kind of spiritualized Jews. In fact, there's a distinction here between the church in Smyrna and the synagogue, not the meeting place of, of the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, that's their synagogue, versus the church in Smyrna. He doesn't want there to be any connection between the Jews and the Christians. Christianity is altogether a different religion. He refers to their meeting place as the synagogue that comes from Satan, that's associated with Satan. That is a significant statement. It'll be said again in chapter 3, verse 9. Who is Satan? Well, he is the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, according to chapter 12, verse 9. He's the one who's going to be bound for a thousand years when Christ returns in chapter 20, verse 2. He's the one who will be released after the thousand-year reign of Christ in chapter 20, verse 7. And he'll look to deceive the nations, but he'll be bound and defeated and thrown into the lake of eternal fire. Jesus warned the Jews about this too. That if they persisted in rejecting him, then they should recognize that it was not God who was their father but it was the devil who was their father. Remember that in John 8, verse 39. Jesus, they answered and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication, implying that he was. We have one father, God, Jesus said to them. If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. That's what Jesus said to the Jewish people rejecting him in his own earthly life. And now he says it again to the people of Smyrna, these Jews are not true to where Judaism should take you because they reject the Messiah. So that makes them a synagogue belonging to Satan. You say, oh, that sounds very anti-Semitic. No, it's a spiritual reality, friends. Any religion that rejects Jesus as the true son of God, God in human flesh, is a religion inspired by Satan. Or as 1 Timothy 4 says, it's... It's full of the doctrines of demons. Even Judaism, if it does not realize Christ as the Messiah and remains, as it were, connected to the old covenant, is a doctrine, is a religion maintained by our arch enemy, the devil. So don't don't be bereft of confidence in your suffering. You wonder if anybody knows what's going on. Jesus knows everything. He has an omniscient knowledge of everything you are going through and he cares for you. So you look to him for strength when you suffer. You trust him for confidence when you suffer for him. Look at a third way to concentrate on Christ in suffering. Found in verse 10. Obey Jesus for endurance. This is what it means to concentrate on him. You look to him for strength. You trust him for confidence. You obey him for endurance when you suffer. Verse 10, do not fear. That's a command, isn't it? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation, that is affliction, for 10 days Here's another command, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. So what are the commands here to to obey? One, don't fear. Don't fear. So how am I not gonna fear suffering? Well, you realize that suffering is a testing. Suffering is a testing. Don't fear what you're about to suffer, Jesus said. Now, they're already suffering affliction, but evidently there's a greater affliction that's about to come. Something more intense. You say, well, if they've been going through affliction for many days, how bad could 10 days be? Evidently, this 10 days is more significant than what they have been going through up to this point. Even refers to another term used for Satan, the devil, the slanderer, the enemy, the accuser, will cast some of you into prison. It's likely the devil's work through these Jewish blasphemers who use the secular government to imprison these Christians. And he says it will last for 10 days. What does that mean? Well, there are plenty of people who want to say that this is a symbolic number. And the primary reason they want to say it's a symbolic number is it's, it's in the book of Revelation. Nothing can be literal in the book, book of Revelation. It can't be actual. Well, it's true that there's a number of metaphors and symbols in the book of Revelation, so it's worth asking, what would this symbolize? It's fascinating to read the accounts of those who say this is symbolic. Some say it's a symbolic of 10 different periods of persecution under the Roman system. It's really hard, though, to pin down which 10 periods of persecution it is. Or some connect it to Daniel chapter 1 and the 10 days of testing that Daniel and his friends went through And they say, ah, because this book has a lot of connection to the book of Daniel, this is just symbolic of their going through trial like Daniel and his friends went through. The problem is those 10 days of testing for Daniel and his friends had to do with their diet, not their death. 
It's probably not a direct relationship to that. Or some would say, well, it's 10 compared to Revelation 20, 1,000. So it just means a short amount of time versus a long amount of time. Well, the problem with that is that if John wanted to say a short time, he knows how to say that. He actually does do that in other places in the book. He'll say a short amount of time. To say 10 days means it's a specified time. What would give them confidence? What would give them endurance if they knew the beginning and end of this particular trial that was even more intense than the affliction that they were currently going through than to know you've got 10 days, which means what? It's temporary. It will end. It's not going to go on. That would help them to endure. That's why he gives such a specific number. And that tells you who's ultimately in control of all of suffering. If he can tell you the beginning and the end of the suffering, he controls even that suffering. Much like Jesus when he was sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for how many days? 40 days. That was 40 literal days. It's not the only time Jesus was tempted by the devil. It was a specific period of intense time of persecution and testing by the devil. And by the way, who's doing the testing here of the Smyrnaeans? Is it God or is it the devil? Yes. Good answer. <laughs> we know that. It's just like Jesus in Matthew 4. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You say, well, why would God do that? I thought James 1 says God never tempts anyone. He never tempts anyone to failure. He never intends that a time of trial or suffering would end in your failure. He always designs that a time of suffering exalts your faith. The devil, on the other hand, always designs that that same time of testing would be a time of temptation for you to fail and for you to walk away. So they're told here, this time of trial is a time of testing to test your faith. You don't have any reason to be afraid. Know what this is. Wouldn't that help you to embrace the time of trial to say this is a time that God is using to display faithfulness to him. And here's what we know about all of our trial as well. It is all temporary, isn't it? It's all temporary. It's not going to last. There's nothing to be afraid of. So obey him. Don't be afraid. Know that your testing, that your suffering is just a testing. Secondly, be faithful. That's the other command. Be faithful. Why? Because death leads to life. This is really important that you get this. Be faithful, that's the end of verse 10. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful means to be loyal to Christ. Continue to believe, don't walk away from him until death. It's like Polycarp said, 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Be faithful even if it results in death. What do you get? The crown of life. This is not an actual crown to be placed on your head. This is the crown that is life. Life is the crown. It's the reward. The stephanos is the is the word for crown and it was the wreath that would be given to an athlete when they won in the games in the arena. The wreath would be placed on their head and the wreath that we get is not leaves for our head, it's life for eternity. It's very similar to the imperishable wreath of 1 Corinthians 9.25 or the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5.4 or the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. All those crowns are crowns that are glory, crowns that are imperishable, a crown that is righteousness, life, righteousness, glory. Those are the rewards that we get. If you endure and your endurance takes your life, what do you get? Life. Be faithful. What do you have to fear? What's at the other end of it? What do you get if you abandon him? 
It's a powerful statement. Obey in faith. And the obedience of faith provides a test to prove your faith and it gives you the reward, eternal life. You look to Jesus for strength when you suffer for him. You trust Jesus for confidence when you suffer for him. You obey Jesus for endurance when you suffer. That's what it means to concentrate on him. One final one. In verse 11. Listen to Jesus for life in suffering. Listen to Jesus. Again, he says what he says at the end of Every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he addresses the one who overcomes. What are we to listen to? Well, let me suggest that verse 11 has at least this idea, and it means that we need to pay attention to Scripture when we're suffering. Again, who's writing the letter? Jesus is. We're told that at the beginning but we need to hear what the Spirit is then saying in this letter to all the churches, which is this is something given in writing for all of us. It's simply another reference to the truth of the written revelation of God, which is the word of the Spirit. And I, I just want to remind you of this truth. This is true no matter what kind of trial you're going through. All trials turn us inward to think about ourselves and all trials, the remedy for it, the help in it is to get your mind off of yourself and put it back on the revelation of God that leads you to him. So if you want to if you want to dwell in the trial and be overcome by the trial, you keep thinking on yourself, what I'm going through, what I don't get, what I don't like, what I and you turn your mind back to what does the scripture tell you? What has your Lord said to you? What can you be sure? The only thing you can be sure of that comes from the Spirit is found in the Word. Hear what the Spirit is saying. And he doesn't mean just listen to it on your, on your iPhone. Hear and obey it. Obey it. Pay attention to it. If you don't take these ideas that are in this letter and apply it when you're suffering, you might not endure And also, don't just pay attention to Scripture, but remember the promise of Jesus to him who overcomes. To the one who overcomes, nikao is the word. It's from where the brand Nike gets its name. It means victorious. To those who wear Nikes, maybe not that. To the one who is victorious, the overcomer who doesn't give in to fear and pressure and trial. They don't stop believing. They don't stop following. They persevere to the very end. No matter what it costs them, they will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? What's mentioned in Revelation 20 verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Revelation 20, verse 14, the death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8, before the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What is the second death? It's eternal death. It's eternal death. You might die once physically, but you don't have to succumb to the second death, the eternal death to come. Jesus reminded his followers in Luke 12, verse 4 and 5, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But if you overcome, you have no fear of the second death, of eternal death. Dying now doesn't affect eternal life at all. And in fact, you get the crown of life and you're never going to be touched by eternal death. What a promise this is. How do you suffer? And even more than that, when you concentrate on Christ, what are you concentrating on? 
You look to Jesus, he's your strength in suffering. He outlasts your circumstances. He's already experienced death and resurrection, so you have nothing to fear. He's yours. He's your strength. You trust him for confidence because he knows comprehensively everything that you're going through, the effects of it, and who's behind it. You obey him in the midst of that suffering to endure because you're not afraid. You know what you're going through. It's a testing. You're faithful. You have no fear. You listen to Jesus. The scriptures become your steadiness. The promise of life is your reward. There isn't another way to suffer and remain loyal. This is how you concentrate on Christ when you go through suffering. We need to listen to the letter to the church in Smyrna. We don't know what the Lord might bring up for our own experiences. We have no idea. You, You never know when you're going to encounter some people who suffer for the sake of Christ. And even death, I have met a number of people who have had their life put on the line in other countries because they openly profess faith in Jesus Christ in a place where that's not welcomed. You might need to encourage them. You think about this in terms of what we're enduring even now. You think... If we can't think about Christ in this way now in our temporary kinds of circumstances and our challenges that we have, yes, they're real and they're painful, but they're not quite what the Smyrnaeans were going through. If we won't do that now, do we have any hope that we would endure? Well, we have hope so far as the Lord would grant it to us and that we'll listen to what he said. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for help now in seeing your grace in the scriptures. The promise that you will help those who are suffering to endure. The promise that you will give eternal life to those who have been challenged. Lord, we pray that we would think about these words in relationship to our own loyalty to Christ and where that loyalty is being tested in whatever sphere that might be. Grant us the grace to be able to think on, concentrate on, and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who begins it, the one who will bring it to completion. We look forward to the day when life is our crown, life with you forever. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.